This afternoon's lecture is a final event in a four-part series that has examined the multiple facets of the experience of womanhood in American society and culture. If you missed any of the earlier programs, you can find them in video or in podcast format on our website. Our speaker today is cultural anthropologist Caridwin N. Lewis. Dr. Lewis specializes in gender, sexuality, agency, identity, and the body. She holds a doctorate in anthropology and a master's degree in anthropology and women's studies from Brandeis University. She teaches in the anthropology, sociology, and women's gender and sexuality studies departments at Brandeis University. She is also a lecturer in the women's gender and sexuality studies and sociology departments at Harvard University. So she's very busy. Dr. Lewis's latest book, Embodying Her Land, the Women's Movement, Culture, and Gender examines the contemporary women's land movement in the United States through lesbian identity, body praxis, and ideas about community and race. Another research project, Fan Bodies and Fan Performance, Community, Identity, and Intersecting Selves, explores body performance among science fiction fans and examines the intersections between fandom identity and other identities such as queerness, sexuality, gender, race, ethnicity, and body shape ability presentation. This afternoon, Dr. Luis will explore the complex cultural intersections of body, gender, and self-community. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Caridwin and Lewis to the Boston Athenaeum. Thank you so much for the, for the lovely introduction. So as you know, my talk is called Naked Among the Karma Eaters. And I shall start with a, an anecdote. The airport car rental place offered my wife and I a cheap upgrade from the compact we'd reserved when they heard where we were headed. As we powered that six-cylinder sedan over seven arroyos carved in the steep dirt road up to the mesa's top 6,000 feet over sea level, we were grateful. Halfway up, I got out, worked the combination lock, we'd gotten the combination in email, and opened the gate for the car. I made sure to refasten it securely and snap the lock in place. And then it was about another mile to go before we got our first glimpse of the gathering. There was a round red red mud brick house with turtles and snakes shaped on the outside, as well as a few canopies set up for shelter. A clawfoot bathtub stood out next to it, hooked up to a rain-catching water tank atop a wood-burning stove. Women of all shapes, sizes, and ages were parking vehicles, walking around, hugging, chatting, unpacking, and getting their camping gear together. I got out of the car, eager for a bathroom. We'd been driving two or three hours since Santa Fe. We greeted women we'd met at our first Landite gathering we'd attended two years earlier in Ohio. We were introduced to some of the women from this land, and after the initial wave of conversation, I politely asked where the shitters, common Landite terminology, were. One of the land women took me on a brief tour. The red sandy soil was peppered here and there with flying choya, a small, low-lying cactus that was prone to being kicked by unwary feet. I changed from sandals to heavy boots immediately upon getting out of the car after an inadvertent introduction. 
There were stands of scrubby pines and tall cacti. Practically everywhere we had a spectacular view off the edge of the mesa, angular mountains covered with twisted trees cut by raw red canyons, their layered colors slightly subdued under a pearly sky promising long-awaited rain. There were very few houses or other signs of human habitation. We rounded a stand of pines to an especially amazing view. My guide gestured triumphantly to a five-gallon bucket topped with a toilet seat. The toilet paper is in the coffee can. Be sure to put the lid back on it so the dew doesn't get in. And the sawdust is in the blue bucket, she said. I looked at these arrangements, then back at the main trail between houses, which was not quite obscured by the short trees. One of the women I knew waved cheerfully at me. I looked back at my guide, who was not going anywhere. She was standing right next to me, naming the distant mountains for my benefit, and I realized, to the distress of my bladder, she did not feel privacy was required. Welcome to women's land. So what are women's lands? The answer is at once simple and complex. Women's lands are independent living communities composed entirely of women. These communities form all over the world, but for the purposes of my book, I limited my analysis to those in the United States. They form as urban households, rural communities, and suburban communities, ranging from a cluster of houses on a Florida seaside to hand-built one-room shacks with wood stoves and organic gardens deep in rural areas. Although people who know about such communities might assume that this style of living passed from existence sometime in the late 1970s, there is a flourishing networked organization of such lands, the Association of Lesbians and Community, which last registered over 100 of them in the United States. Women's lands have historically varied. They have included urban households, perhaps most famously exemplified by the Furious Collective, a lesbian group living at 219 11th Street Southeast in Washington, D.C. from 1971 to 1973, who published the Furious newspaper. They have included rural lands, such as Owl Farm, founded in 1975 in Oregon, still extant, which operated as open women's land for a while. Open means open to any woman who wants to live there. For a long time, they used a completely consensus-based and collective decision-making model. Many such communities and collectives were temporary, such as the 1971 takeover of 888 Memorial Drive, which some of you may be familiar with. This was a Harvard-owned building and was taken over by women who wanted more equal division of the university's and city's resources. This event resulted in the founding of the Cambridge Women's Center, which still exists today. They sprang from the passionate experimentalism of feminism, lesbian feminism, and women of color's feminism, sometimes known as the second wave. These places have not vanished. Many women's lands still remain, and new ones are even now being founded, including one that I have only heard rumors of and was, alas, unable to obtain an invitation to, an alpaca farm run by trans women of color. Lesbian separatism is only one of the philosophies behind women's land, most of my informants did not identify as separatists, and their activism and ideas are still in active dialogue with the rest of the world. In fact, as I prepared my manuscript for press, several friends excitedly emailed me to say that there was an essay in Vogue called Country Women, written by Rebecca Bengal and illustrated with lovely photos and short gifts by Amanda Janskowski-Pasquale. The article is sympathetic and personal. So what do women's lands and lesbian lands have to tell us? My book is an attempt to answer that question. In the course of my research, I visited four women's lands, one in Massachusetts, which I refer to as Oak Trust, one in Tennessee, which I refer to as Mountain View, 
one in New Mexico, which I refer to as Turtle Mesa, featured in my opening story, and one in Ohio, which I refer to as Wild Uprising. I also visited the women's, Michigan Women's Music Festival once, interviewed 32 women, and attended two Landite gatherings. My informants include women who have participated in women's lands in New Zealand, Japan, England, and Eastern Europe, as well as North America, though I've chosen only to excerpt and use material relating to North America. I also interviewed informants who have lived in women's lands in the past, traveling dykes who did not live at any one land but made a practice of traveling around them, um, one woman who was living in a mixed-gender community, and women who were um, planning to move to women's lands community and who were currently involved. While I was preparing this talk, I received a couple of emails from the Athenaeum politely inquiring if I was planning on using slides, and if so to please provide them ahead of time. I looked at the outline of the material I was planning to talk about. Topic one, nudity. Topic two, toilets. Topic three, food and fat. I emailed back and said that I didn't think I was going to be using slides. So these topics come from the overall argument of chapter six of my book, which focuses on small, everyday ways of being in the world and how these help create culture. Um, focusing on these, this, my experience comes from my training in anthropology of the body, and I'm looking at body practices. So how do land women, that is my own term, use the body to create meaning? What do bodily experiences mean, and how do they mean? I'm going to start with nudity, the notion of marked and unmarked bodies. When I took my first field trip to women's land, I thought I was prepared for things to be different. I was not. I suppose since my field location was in the United States, of which I am a native, and my informants were lesbians, a population to which I belong, I was expecting a culture that would not be too different from what I was familiar with. Instead, I experienced severe culture shock. To a great extent, this culture shock was due to the different way these women had of being in the world. The physical acts that make up women's relations to the land, women's relations to each other, and women's relations to their own bodies were different. These differences were attributed by my informants to the literal absence of the male gaze. This was explicitly noted by landwomen as one of the main reasons for the creation of women's land, space where women are free from the perceptions of men. We owe the concept of the male gaze to Laura Mulvey, a film critic writing about the ways in which the feminine body is portrayed. According to Mulvey, the male gaze of the camera assumes a male audience, and thus the feminine characters are to be looked at, not identified with, what she calls subjects of the gaze. Jumping sideways to Foucault's Discipline and Punish, I promise I won't stay there for very long, um, we engage his theory of the panopticon, or panoptic power, the idea that modern forms of discipline em emerge from constant surveillance. Eventually, Foucault asserts, we internalize that surveillance and watch ourselves, internalizing the rules of discipline. Thus, although the audience is not composed entirely of men, the camera speaks to a male audience, and we, the audience, internalize the ways that femininity is supposed to be viewed and to act, regardless of our gender. We all supposedly then have a male gaze. Thus, in this concept of the male gaze, although the gazers are not always male, the ways in which the gaze disciplines female bodies are seen by my informants in ways that specifically benefit men. 
In fact, men benefit twice from the assumed male gaze. The first is the application of presumed heterosexual dominant mainstream tastes to the female body, producing the outward pages stuck, sorry, shapes of what Foucault and Sandra Bartke call the docile body. The second is how such docile bodies are secondary and subservient even when they are coded as white, upper class, or otherwise dominant. According to Bartke, while it may benefit an individual woman to discipline her body into attractiveness, for example, it may help her gain a professional job, the customs that state that attractive women are more likely to gain jobs benefit men who do not have to invest the same amount of time and energy into appearance in order to compete for the same jobs. So, back to my interviewees. The concept of my interviewees, um, this concept of the male gaze, is both panoptic in that it implies self-policing, but also literal in that it depends on the presence of men. This definition is thus a paradox. The removal of people defined male should not necessarily prevent a male gaze in people already trained to observe the tastes and disciplines of that gaze. But the assumed absence in women's space produces cultural results. Nudity, obviously immediate cultural result of this assumed absence. Nudity and partial nudity are common in women's lands. And I often saw um, women in, in these spaces, also in spaces such as music festivals, going topless, going to and from the shadows, wearing only towels or nothing at all. Swimming areas are always suit optional in my experience. In fact, I've never seen a woman wearing a bathing suit at all on women's land. So nudity and nakedness are usually discussed in anthropology through the lens of the other or the primitive. Indeed, according to Philippa Levine, a lack of clothing among colonized individuals has connoted primitiveness and savagery since at least the 17th century. It is widely known that dress and adornment vary widely from culture to culture. I don't need to tell you this. And that plenty of cultures exist where levels of clothing um, are that other cultures regard as frank nudity. Ruth Barkhan notes that exposure, sin, sex, death, shame, anxiety, as well as savagery, are also symbolized or held to be associated with nudity. What I want to point out is that absence of civilization and even connections with poverty, or at least perhaps the rejection of capitalism, may be deliberately sought, as in the case of my informants and other groups that deliberately embrace nakedness. It is notable that Philip Cargom's book a Brief History of Nakedness, has very few photos of bodies that are not white, thin, young, and normatively heterosexual. These bodies were overwhelmingly not like the bodies I was familiar with from women's lands, which included old, fat, scarred, hairy, tattooed, disabled, and queer bodies. I argue, therefore, that the nudity of bodies on women's land is the nudity of abjected bodies, bodies that the hegemonic mainstream does not want to be naked. Levine suggests tellingly that indigenous people were seen as ugly in her discussion of photographs of nude natives. This ugly difference was used to establish hierarchies between worthy and unworthy bodies, primitive bodies and civilized bodies, bodies that were suited to be ruled and bodies that should rule them. Similarly, bodies that are not sleek, young-looking, and tightly managed are also regarded as ugly in American mainstream culture. We'll be returning to this in a bit. 
Bodies on women's land are not colonized, predominantly also pass as white, but they are resistant to feminine body habitus. Thus, instead of exposing themselves, these bodies are expected to hide, neither fish nor fowl, neither colonizer nor properly colonized. They are failed body projects, bodies which are abjected because they have rejected or failed civilization. But on women's land, because of the connection with the land and nature, they are celebrated. Positive associations with nudity include this connection to nature, rejection of modernity and artificiality, and freedom. Barkin lists and supports an even, even longer list of positive associations, including authenticity. However, for land women, the naked body is an assertion of authority and the lack of the male gaze. Barkin suggests that Western female nakedness has often been restricted to erotic and domestic contexts. Land women undermine both of these meanings with outdoor nudity. It is non-domestic and not explicitly erotic. This acceptance of the body is neither wholesale nor universal, as I'm going to shortly discuss, but the surface of acceptance is near universal. I have not experienced having another woman comment on my body, nor have I witnessed women commenting on each other's bodies while using an open-air shower. My informant Meg, who self-identifies as a fat land dyke, told me that at Michigan she went to the shower wearing only flip-flops with no openly negative reactions. Old women walked around without shirts at the land dyke gatherings. I could not imagine, and I did not witness, anyone making disparaging comments. Yet, in the matrix culture of the U.S., such body discipline is everywhere. In a culture where such negative comments are nearly unthinkable, women are encouraged not to participate in the panopticon of the male gaze. Such policing, in fact, may happen in reverse. Women trained from birth to speak disparagingly of their own bodies meet negative responses on women's land. One informant, Ivanova, told me that a self-deprecating body remark was met with, quote, a firm but clear message that such talk was not only unnecessary here, but unwelcome and uncomfortable. She added ruefully that women communicate such messages with varying levels of kindness or hostility, and stated that this led to conscious self-monitoring. My informants state that outside of women's land, they sometimes participate in self-policing, thus becoming part of this panopticon of the male gaze. But the male gaze is also perceived as somehow being physically located within men. The, in the absence of male human beings, women's land are conceived as being freed or partially freed from the male gaze. For example, Victoria Brownsworth writes about the Michigan Women's Music Festival, quote, but in the week during which it is all women, all the time, women of different races, ethnicities, ages, sizes, abilities, the world feels like a very different place. A place where there is no male gaze and no threat of catcalling or body shaming or sexual assault. The absence of the literal male body becomes a synecdoche for the absence of the larger phenomenon of the male gaze. Yet, the Michigan Women's Music Festival, here celebrated as a space of freedom for women, is also the center of a policing gaze itself. It was once the flashpoint of the debate over the admittance of trans women to women's only space. From the politics of Camp Trans, an organization that seeks to end trans women's exclusion from women's only spaces, but which is best known for the protest outside the gates of Michigan every year, to the heated and often vitriolic online debates about the admissions of trans women, 
The Michigan Women's Music Festival has been a prominent symbol of trans exclusion for decades. With the closing of Michigan's gates in 2015, transphobia has not vanished, but this particular symbol has, has closed. Just to be clear, by trans women, I mean women, people who have been diagnosed at birth as the male or masculine sex gender and who has then changed their gender to female through behavior, dress, and sometimes also through surgery and hormones. Similarly, cis woman or cis women refer to a woman or woman whose gender presentation matches the genital diagnosis given at birth. Dana Leland DeFoss is usually credited with the first widely public use of this term in a web document in 1994. Cis is a deliberately neutral and non-loaded term and comes either from a clever use of chemistry terms for molecular chirality, this is the most popular theory, or possibly from the German. In either case, it's simply the opposite of trans. While I've been working on my book, questions about transphobia were always the first and most numerous I received about my work. Um, which is really interesting because as a cisgendered person, transphobia was not really my main experience. Chapter 7 delves into this issue in more depth, but I did want to touch on the issue of trans bodies and nudity, and how nudity, although used as a symbol of freedom, can also become a mechanism for body policing. Trans people are feared by some of my informants, not all of them, but some, for having wrong bodies. Trans women who have not yet undergone gender alignment surgery are shut out from some women's spaces where there is obligate nudity in the showers, for example. Women who attend these events state that the sight of male genitalia is anything from wrong to disgusting to frightening. The United States segregates people according to gender for bathing and excretion. And when that segregation is breached, the taboo causes violent reactions. Abuse survivor narratives are also commonly used as straw arguments and to imply that trans women themselves, by the association of their genitalia with the genitalia of abusers, are sexual predators. Well, of course, it is possible that a trans woman could be a sexual predator. It is also possible for any woman to be a sexual predator. And cis women are not automatically assumed to be such by a categorical conflation of their genitalia with the ability to rape. I'm sure I do not need to remind my audience that it is possible to rape someone without a penis. Such assumptions also make those who are victims of female abusers invisible. Lastly, accusations of rape against trans women are vanishingly rare. Thus, obligate nudity, which brings genitalia into public view that are usually hidden in United States cultures, enables a form of genitalia policing that otherwise would not be possible. Most of the time in the U.S., no matter how transphobic the public may be, we only have the outward forms of bodies and gender performance to exercise that transphobia on. But in cultures where nudity is not only celebrated but practically mandatory, for example, as in my opening story, where privacy was just not considered necessary for excretion, the policing of genitalia for proper gender appearance is possible. One of my informants called trans men crazy for having a double mastectomy, despite the fact that we both knew land women and were currently staying at a land where one lived who had had breast cancer that had resulted in the exact same procedure. Some land women view trans people as simply having wrong bodies and moreover to have perversely wrong bodies, bodies that they have made wrong through surgery, hormones, and bodily practices. Patrick Califia suggests that these wrong bodies are threatening because they remind us of our own gender transgressions. He writes, I suspect this is a strategy for reducing the anxiety of a reader who might otherwise be forced to confront his or her own failures at living up to gender stereotypes. 
This is also true for the removal of trans women from women's space. This reduces the way in which trans folk remind us that there are times when cisgender people also do gender wrong, and when our own bodies may be seen as transgressive or perverse. The hegemony of the correct female body runs deep. This hegemony also uncompromisingly excludes lesbian, disabled, old, fat, scarred, and androgynous women. But on women's land, these bodies are not judged by the same standard, even when their flaws are essentially the same ones that are feared on trans bodies. Trans bodies thus serve as a scapegoat for our own transgressions. Let's talk about toilets. When talking with one of the women at Wild Uprising, she told me that she thought a lot of women's anxiety and repressions in the United States came from bathroom anxiety, bathroom restrictions, from having to hold it until reaching a place of suitable privacy. She said that she felt that one of the best things about women's land was that women were permitted to pee anywhere outside, um, whenever and wherever the need struck, and this permitted a more natural and healthy relationship with the body. In fact, she was squatting and urinating while talking to me. So as you can see from this, excretion is neither a matter for intense privacy nor a taboo subject in many women's lands. Land women are not unique in this disdain for excretory privacy. Sarah Lamb notes that both defecation and urination in the Bangladeshi village where she did her fieldwork typically happened out in the open. In that context, the lack of privacy implied social surveillance as to whether one was properly bathing following defecation. And Isabel Finesca notes that not only did the Makari she lived with excrete outdoors, but they were such firm believers in the non-necessity of privacy that someone would accompany her to the outdoor toilet site every time, resulting in her becoming, quote, intransigently constipated. This parallels my first experience with the non-necessity of privacy rather uncomfortably. There are a wide variety of cultural taboos about excretion. Horace Minor, in his satirical but nonetheless accurate study of American body habits, emphasized the premier importance of privacy for the rituals of both excretion and bathing. Mike Dimfel and Sharon Moran suggest that as a culture, we are invested in the construction of the body as fundamentally other than our waste-making proclivities. So, Taboos about excretion are tied not only into unspoken ideas about the body, but also gender, the state, the proper domestic household, pollution, modernity, nature, and again, the body's role in all of these. So the flush toilet, it's a common icon of modernity associated with cleanliness, urban life, proper sanitation, but also hidden from view architecturally and socially, and it's thus itself engendering privacy. Margaret Del Carmen Morales, Lila Harris, and Gunilla Oberg discovered in their work investigating sustainable and dry toilet systems in Buenos Aires that the flush toilet and the concept of flushing sewage, making it vanish, are central to how urban dwellers think about citizenship and modernity. And this is why um, installing dry toilets in cities is actually really hard. It's hard to get people to accept them. The a lack of the flush toilet then and embrace of more sustainable options is a cultural choice that rejects an urban model. It's a rejection of the city and modernity and an affirmation of nature and rural life through bodily practices. Such ecologically sound toilets are embraced by a wide variety of cultures, ranging from communards, eco-friendly city dwellers, and of course those who are concerned about sanitation for underserved urban populations, although those urban populations usually aren't happy about it. 
For land women, rejection of the city and modernity, rejection of state control, aesthetics, and concepts of anti-pollution are all woven together in the adoption of alternatives to the flush toilet. That is, they recast the products of the body as not polluting and therefore not needing to be flushed. Bucket toilets on women's land come in many varieties. From the one I described, the elaborate outdoor pagoda of flyaway home, to the lovely indoor toilets of two of my um, interviewees at Mountain View. They maintain two bathrooms, one for solid waste and one for urine. They said they generally only emptied the buckets into an outdoor composter every three days. Their bathrooms were clean and odor-free. Not all women's lands have or use open-air public toilets. In addition, I've also encountered traditional flush toilets that made use of running water and individual septic systems, flush composters, and at festivals, of course, portable toilets serviced by a septic truck. But many women view composting as a political or even spiritual choice as well as a personal one. Composting toilets of whatever variety use little to no water and return nutrients to the soil. They're also extremely easy and cheap to build. Comfortable ones can be created in little time with few materials. But the politics of composting go beyond ecological consciousness or monetary necessity to the idea of women's bodies as acceptable, non-disgusting objects that connect themselves to a larger landscape through valued products, feces and urine. So women's lands are not the only lands where this is embraced. Lucy Pickering notes that the very idea of the toilet as connection to a larger state is rejected by hippies in Hawaii. That's where she did her work. Pickering argues that toilets and plumbing are relational, connecting the private self to a hidden public system and regulating private cleanliness and public sanitation. Therefore, her hippie informants rejected that connection with the state in favor of connection with natural cycles of recycling, composting, and fertilization through the use of drop toilets, composting toilets, etc. She suggests that they creatively reframe feces and urine, which transgress bodily boundaries as generative, life-giving matter. This is very similar to how my interviewees, women's land inhabitants, conceive of bucket toilets, composting toilets, and urination. Feces are not considered something that needs to be hidden and separated from daily life, and urine was considered beneficial for plants, similar to Pickering's informants. These substances are no longer dirt, but now earth, connecting human bodies to the landscape. This engenders a bodily relationship to the land in which human bodily products are not waste to be disposed of in secret, but a product that is part of a natural, larger natural cycle and beneficial to the land. In contrast to how human waste is often seen as a dirty or polluting substance in urbanized settings, on women's land, it is valued. Pickering's hippie informants valued it for its ability to grow plants such as cannabis, my informants did not use it on crops intended for human use, but valued the act of composting human waste as a connection to the land in particular and the concept of natural cycles in general. This is greatly at odds at how we view excretion in the matrix United States, where it's something to be done in private, it's dirty, don't let people know that it's happening. So. The interpretation of bodily functions as both natural and valued, I argue, allows women to assert that their bodies are also natural and valued. Thus, women's land is claimed as a space where a variety of bodies can exist without the constraints of shame. So why must the male gaze be absent for this? 
In the matrix culture, it is not only women who are not supposed to pee in public. Uh, men generally have a little bit more freedom in this area, though. However, the fact that bathrooms still tend to be gender segregated in the United States suggests that a gendered gaze is still implicated. This connects back to Garber's discussion of Lacan's concept of urinary segregation and how this reinforces but also most importantly helps to create the gender binary. This bathroom problem, as Halberstrom puts it, polices gender within the restroom, making those who do not adhere to gender binaries, such as butch women, vulnerable to a curiously public gaze. Thus, it is not simply the lack of a male gaze, but the lack of a gender binary that allows women on women's lands to claim not only the women's room, but everywhere. Paradoxically, of course, the openness of excretion still enables the policing of trans bodies in ways even more efficient than bathroom bills. By collapsing the gender binary to an essentialist dependence on genitalia, policing still occurs, focusing on our scapegoat population. So bodily practices, even those as mundane as excretion and bathing, work to connect the body with a feminine or female environment. All right, so let's get to the karma eaters part. We're going to talk about fat. So despite how they may be sometimes portrayed in larger US matrix culture, women's lands are not havens from the fat phobia of the United States. However, on women's lands, the meanings of fatness, food, and the female body are inflected and changed by lesbian and feminist identity. In particular, the politics of food environmentalism and the overall rubric of health that connects both of these change what a fat body means in women's only space. While doing fieldwork, I have often been surprised and challenged as a fat person myself by the this fat phobia and the ways it both mirrors and differs from the fat phobia of the US. Although Bartke claimed, quote, that women in radical lesbian communities have rejected hegemonic images of femininity and are struggling to develop a new fem female aesthetic in 1997, um, that rejection has not gone so deep as to abjure the aesthetics of the thin and muscular body. That thin muscular body, firmly socially bounded and policed, may stand for a slightly different symbolism of discipline on women's land. But the discipline itself and the ultimate meaning of being a properly civilized person remains. There's a persistent cultural myth in the United States that there is a one-to-one -one relationship between diet and the shape of the body. Among land women, this belief is more specific. The idea that eating food that is earth-friendly, including but not limited to vegetarian or vegan, cruelty-free, raw diet, organic, locally grown, etc., will result in a thin body. Carol Adams, in The Sexual Politics of Meat, a feminist vegetarian political theory, um, suggested that meat has come to symbolize masculinity and patriarchy. Thus, vegetarianism, commonly practiced on women's land, symbolizes femininity, respect for nature, and female power. On women's land, this rejection is viewed not only as political, but also as having visible impact on the body and environment. An earth-friendly diet is thus not healthy only for the earth, but also healthy for the women eating it, where health encompasses bodily, mental, and spiritual aspects. So, in the United States matrix cultures, health have strong moral connotations and connections to the thin body. It's also very moral. I just said that. <laughs> in the cultural networks of women's lands, 
This form of health is even more overtly moralized, since it impinges not only on the woman herself, but also on her politics, her spirituality, and on the environment around her. Thus, the fat body may be negatively stigmatized regardless of what actual food practices fat women practice. Because of the symbolism, borrowed from the matrix culture, lazy, lack of self-control, lower class, sinful, excessive, ugly, and because of the symbolism adopted from the feminist environmental movement, parasitical, earth-hating, selfish, poisonous, subject to the patriarchy, kiriarchy, and undeveloped, spiritually unaware. Thus the body and its shape come to stand only not for its own internal moral state, but for the relationship between that woman and the world around her. The thin body is a visible image of one's relationship not only with food morality, but with the larger ecological and spiritual system of the earth. In this way, the meaning of women's bodies, particularly the thin body and the fat body, from the US matrix culture, persists into how bodies are viewed in women's lands. Fat phobia, a term constructed on the same principles as homophobia, connotes both the negative bias of the fat phobic toward bodies they deem as excessive, stereotypes about fat people, and ways in which body shape is blamed on a person's behavior. Amy Farrell, in her comprehensive volume on fat shame in American society, narrates how fatness has been connected to particular bodies, suffragettes, African Americans, lower class or poor people, or immigrant and ethnic people. And these bodies are then marked as uncivilized, primitive, and unworthy. Fat phobia thus relies on the idea that you can read the moral state of a person's mind, soul, or social status through the body, to which they have a pre-cultural, natural, inevitable, one-to-one -one connection. Thus, both in the matrix culture and on women's land, what a fat woman actually eats or says she eats is not sufficient to exonerate her from the sin of having a fat body, which is tangible proof that she is not really performing properly. This is held to be true whether or not that diet is simply calorie restricted to the point of penitence or whether the diet is earth friendly, as both of these are expected to produce thin and visibly moral bodies. The fat body is a testimonial against her health, her politics, her spirituality, and then her honesty. My first personal encounter with such surprisingly narrow bodily ideals came at a Landite gathering at Turtle Mesa, where I was startled to find a slot on the schedule for an Overeaters Anonymous meeting. Discussions with other fat Landites revealed the presence of the item on the schedule was a clear message to us about how certain of the people there um, felt that we were ugly, wrong, and unwanted. One of the women I interviewed, Meg, whom I mentioned before, identified as both a Landite and a fat woman. In the interview, she said that she'd not previously noticed body consciousness at Landite gatherings and had felt quite comfortable going nude. However, after seeing the posting on the notice board for Overeaters Anonymous, she was very careful not to go nude at this particular gathering. She added that she felt as though their problems with her body were their problems, not really mine, but also said that she did not want to expose herself either literally or metaphorically to their hostility. While overeating is not necessarily empirically linked to the fat body, it's actually kind of difficult to create a fat body via food intake alone, metabolism, metabolism. I'm going to skip that bit. Um, it is intensely linked to the fat body in United States matrix culture. Fat characters in popular media are shown as gluttonous as well as morally corrupt, stupid, and cruel. CFJK Rowling's popular series of children's books. Overeaters Anonymous draws a direct link between overeating and the fat body on the front page of their website, quoting, OA is not just about weight loss gain or maintenance or obesity or diets. 
Although it is not just about the fat body, the fat body is mentioned immediately. Thus, the Overeaters Anonymous site implies that while overeating has other impacts, it is primarily necessary to prevent overeating, to prevent the moral and aesthetic catastrophe of the fat body. There are further implications that food itself is an addictive and dangerous substance akin to alcohol rather than a basic need of life. Thus, the presence of Overeaters Anonymous at a Landite gathering is significant. The moral status of the body is profoundly entwined with the folk belief that fat equals unhealth, which is as active and important in women's land community as it is in the matrix culture. Meg told me that one of the reasons she could not live at a particular women's land was because one of the women there believed she was in imminent danger of a heart attack. Meg said that the fact that she had low blood pressure and low cholesterol and was generally a pretty healthy kind of person meant nothing to this woman, who had told her to her face that she expected Meg to drop dead of a heart attack at any moment. Unspoken, of course, is the idea that the heart attack would be Meg's fault because she was fat. Beliefs like this one display judgments about fat bodies and the way fat people are supposed, in both senses of the term, to live. Farrell notes that due to fat stigma, a thinner body provides an illusion of health, regardless of what's actually going on. And this equivalency of fat with unhealth and health with thinness is everywhere. Health is the main way in which land women relate to the necessity of thinness. Beauty discourse is explicitly rejected, and class remains unspoken just below the surface. Susan Bordeaux's classic analysis of the cultural meaning of slenderness implicates consumerism as the driving force behind the connection of the slender body with success, willpower, upper-class status, and beauty. However, on women's land, the inhabitants have largely rejected that imperative to consume. It is health that drives this message home instead, and it does it just as effectively. Illness and death, as Lupton points out, are failures of the self, which result from lack of proper regulation of the body. That regulation and success are visible as thinness, muscularity, and ability. It is testament to the power of the metaphor of health when a mere generation after feminist thought to assert that a woman's worth was not in her bodily appearance, the necessity of the thin body crops up again, often among these very same women. For example, at one point in a Landite gathering, same one as with the Overeaters Anonymous meeting, one of the attendees, whom I call here B, spoke feelingly on the topic of waking up from an earlier feminist consciousness of loving her body the way it was to the medical dangers of the fat body and praised herself for putting her health above her feminist ideals. As a fat woman, I felt very uncomfortable about all this and replied that I thought health stands for morality in today's culture. In an act I believe was meant to turn the discussion and prevent conflict, Soraka stepped in with a story of fostering a troubled child who used to steal and hide food because he had been starved by his parents and then by his foster parents. She spoke about telling him that he would never have to do that in her house because he was always welcome to anything in her pantry and he would never be punished for eating. By the end of the story, she had several of us in tears and had successfully turned the discussion, a piece of diplomacy I was very grateful for. The very act of eating is gendered in the United States. Lupton suggests that eating vegetables both denotes and promotes femininity, also noting that women were seen as being more you know, concerned about the environment as well. Carol Cunahan, in her ethnographic research among college students in the US, found that certain foods were seen as feminine and certain foods were seen as masculine, and also discussed a marked tendency among her informants to see the very act of eating itself as masculine. She writes that men and women were exposed to eat differently. Women were supposed to eat sparingly, and then notes that the act of eating in pu public at all was fraught with danger for women. 
male students, boyfriends, and fathers were all reported as commenting on restricting and forbidding the consumption of food by women. On women's land, the symbolic presence of a restricting gaze such as Overeaters Anonymous, not to mention a discussion of health through food restriction, calls to mind the ways in which the male gaze is not limited to male bodies. It is instead present in the ways in which female bodies are policed by each other. At the Landite gatherings, food is prepared and served communally, drawn from a common lauder paid for by donations from the women present and utilizing volunteer labor. The basic menu is vegetarian or vegan, um, vegan offerings present at every meal, as well as gluten-free offerings. Meat was cooked separately by women who wished to have it. The food was all freshly prepared and generally quite good. Food sharing is both a basic human act and a complex and important cultural ritual. However, at this particular gathering with the Overeaters Anonymous group offered on the schedule, food became an unpleasantly tense topic at times. One of the women who lived on this land, Diana, ate a diet in which she allowed herself no sugars at all because she believed she was an addict. She eliminated sugar from her diet completely, not only all processed sugar, but also all natural sugar, such as that present in fruit. She served as the kitchen organizer one evening, and that evening the kitchen was tense with hostility and unprecedented errors in food preparation. Um, for example, one side dish of mushroom gravy was burnt beyond saving and had to be recreated. During the hurried second preparation, as people were already lining up to eat, um, people spoke very curtly, deflecting and assigning blame for the mistake. Um, in contrast, although there were negative feelings about kitchen duty at other times during the gathering, um, openly assigning blame was generally avoided. Um, in fact, the usual method of scolding someone, for example, not doing their fair share of the dishes, was to extravagantly praise someone else who had done their share in front of the shirker in question. I observed this several times. Most of the work tension was thus indirectly expressed and did not result in the kind of open hostility we saw in the kitchen that night. The difficulty of preparing food on this occasion did not seem any more difficult than any other night, but it seemed to me that Diana's discomfort with food itself was communicated throughout the kitchen and made what was usually a pleasant communal task tense, hostile, and fraught with judgment. Um, I did not know while helping in the kitchen that Diana both included the Overeaters Anonymous meeting on the schedule and regarded herself as a sugar addict. One of my informants mentioned this when I brought up the subject of the kitchen problems afterwards, and she directly linked the problems to both of these things. The belief that certain foods are addictive, indeed the belief that food itself, a substance that makes up one of the basic necessities of life, is addictive, has been borrowed from the matrix cult culture through alternative medicine. Such beliefs are visible through Overeaters Anonymous, which explicitly places food in the same category as alcohol and illegal drugs. While not all or even a majority of the women on land hold these beliefs, enough do to make these ideas universally intelligible. Such images of food as drug are also common among the eating disordered, where images of binging as the addict getting high are frequently reported. This morality of self-control is influenced by concepts of purity. Purity and impurity, of course, are relative. As Mary Douglas reminds us, dirt is essentially disorder. Food then exhibits great disorder, which must be ordered to control the food and control the body that the food enters. Food is liminal as it bridges nature and culture, the human and the non-human, the outside and the inside. Therefore, food is highly important. It will become part of ourselves. Um, ordering food is a way of ordering the body and the self. So it's significant that food can be seen as a troubling, dangerous, even unclean substance. 
Of course, and from there, it's a short step to the belief that all food must be addicted, all eating habits must be strictly controlled, and the body is actively imperiled by all the substances that enter into it. This dovetails with precise and frightening neatness with the beliefs of the diet industry and the morality of self-control. Food as a substance is regarded as impure by many landwomen, as are traditional pharmaceuticals, alcohol, other psychoactive substances, sometimes with exceptions, tobacco, air pollutants, water pollutants, most body care um, products, including perfumes, and clothing and home cleansers produced with industrial chemicals. Purity can be enhanced by using natural products, as in substituting organic for commercially produced food, or herbs for pharmaceuticals. There is a hierarchy of purity. Herbs, especially organic ones, are seen as a very pure and health-giving item, while perfumes, even if made from like organic stuff and essential oils, are seen as very impure. Um, this attitude toward food is similar to what Fischler calls the omnivore's paradox back in 1988, but this poisoning anxiety is not some issue deep in the human psyche. Um, this is a clear and present danger kept fresh by constant new information about possible poisons in food. Um, this is true both for landwomen and for the American general public. Um, our, we are saturated with media about the dangers of food. Um, on women's land, food is a contested substance. While it can be made more pure, there are still dangerous substances within the food itself. Food can be commonly represented as a pathogen, but food is also a source of morality, right action, and discourse about the body self. And the common equation of nature and virtue is recalled in the hierarchy of purity that natural eating entails. So Meg told me that a time she was celebrating her birthday with a cake. Someone mentioned how much sugar the cake had in it, and Diana, who was a member of the community hosting the celebration, had to leave the table. Meg spoke to me eloquently about how painful this incident was for her and how much implied judgment there was regarding her food choices and her body. Meg later wrote a letter to the community about how her mother had denied her food since she was five, about how she had wanted the food at her birthday to be a celebration. However, the food contained symbolic danger, sugar. Food is never a neutral topic. While processing now breeds symbolic danger, Sugar and other similar substances are not additives and cannot be redeemed out of the food using organic farming or less processed forms of cooking. They are inherent in the food itself. Therefore, food cannot be a completely pure substance. Health foods create a bodily appeal that parallels the rural retreat of some women's lands in the use of symbols of purity, wholesomeness, and an idealized pastoral dream of the good life. Um, I'm going to skip the... Uh, no, I'm not going to skip this. Ashley et al. argue that there are two separate branches of vegetarianism. The ethical, which focuses on the impact on the environment, and lifestyle, which instead focuses on eating healthy. However, in the space of women's land, as I argued before, these things are conflated. The environment and the body are seen as having a reciprocal relationship. Thus, healthy food and vegetarian eating, and their association with purity, femininity, rejection of factory farms, um, are a practice that links bodies to the very space of women's land. The practice of purity in eating, therefore, is not simply policing the boundaries of health and the self, it is policing the boundaries of the entire community. In this context, it is easy to understand how food can be classified as a dangerous, impure, and addictive substance. Diana's decision to classify herself as an addict and to control her diet so stringently is a logical outgrowth of sugar's classification as an evil addictive substance. Um, this is similar to Fischler's concept of sacrophobia, which describes a fear of sugar as the source of disease because of its association with technology and food processing. 
But sugar's evil is not confined to this association of its shunned in natural food. It is not sugar's status as an industrial chemical that makes it impure. It is sugar's reputation as the creator of the unhealthy fat body. The link between healthy eating and the natural world is understood to reflect naturally and visibly in the body itself. The practice is not enough. The construction of morality around the fat body thus invokes powerful real-world effects. Within women's land culture, the construction between relative food impurity, the symbol of the fat body, and the moral importance of health is well developed. So bodily everyday practices around nudity, toilets and food, ideas about the fat and thin body, all serve these particular cultural purposes on women's land and are meant to produce a different way of being in the world. In this, they are at least partially successful. However, because of the strong links between the cultures of women's land and the larger, larger matrix cultures of the United States, particular meanings still persist, although they are changed in this context. Fatness is still disfavored and in some places explicitly rejected, standing as an aesthetic scapegoat. However, fat bodies are permitted to pass in ways that trans bodies are not. In many spaces, Michigan again stands here, um, explicit transphobia was permitted. Both fat bodies and trans bodies carry essential meanings in the larger cultures of the US. That is, they are seen as really being some aspect of themselves rather than the whole person. Fat people are really lazy, stupid, cruel, diseased, selfish, etc. That is, they are really just fat. Similarly, trans folk are really just their genitals rather than the rest of them. These meanings are so powerful that they overwhelm the rest of that person's humanity and carry over even into spaces which are constructed as specifically feminist and oppositional. It's particularly important to note, despite this analysis, that I do not think these spaces are more fatphobic or transphobic than the US in general. In fact, in many cases, I believe they're actually less, as I've interviewed women from specifically trans-inclusive lands and spaces. However, the ways in which these bodies serve as scapegoats and outsiders among a culture of outsiders is important. Particularly, I think we need to examine cases like this where people set about explicitly trying to change culture, where it's tempting to focus on ways that has been successful, rather than the ways in which the attempt is perhaps less successful than we had hoped. Thank you.